Well, good evening, guys. Um, hey, real quickly before we begin, I, I want to draw your attention to uh, your, your bulletin. On the back of it, we try to utilize the back just to, as a, it's a good space to kind of let you know of uh, opportunities for growth, opportunities for service, and a lot of things. Uh, the equip classes that we have on, the, the, these are really a fantastic opportunity as you're looking for, for more places in your week to say, I, I want to grow, I want to be challenged, I want to love God with all of my mind as well as heart, soul, strength, and, and else. The, these are fantastic opportunities for that, as well as to connect in community. Um, also want to let you know of a, of a need that we have. What, one of our values here in, a, in our Wednesday night gathering is, is to just be together. Community. One of the things that, that we've tried to practice is just at the end of every night, just being together. And so, uh, you know, we've, we'll have... Uh, cookies or, 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 or brownies or coffee at the back and end about 10 minutes early. And, and again, just, just kind of be together, you know, do community. That's one of our values. And we, we have a need for that. We, we're looking for people who would say, I, I would love to help with that in some way. Uh, on the back, there's an email there. If, if that's something that you would say, man, I would love to help set up, you know, uh, the, the coffees, the cookie of the night, clean up afterwards. It would really help us to, to accomplish that goal that we have, again, to just to kind of be together at the end of the night. So please take a look at that, if you would. We're in a series uh, looking at Psalm 23, this whole idea of when the Lord is my shepherd, what that, what that looks like. And last week, um, we saw this reality that because of, because of sin, we forget things like taking the offering, which is what I just did. So uh, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and uh, pass, pass the plates. Thank you for reminding me. Um, someday I'll have a mind without sin and I won't forget stuff. Won't that be cool? Um, but because of sin, because of the reality of sin, there's, there's this seed we looked at last week that, that was planted deep into the human heart. And because of this... Uh, we, we place ourselves in, in a relationship with God, which is sort of a self-rule scenario. I, I want to be, be the king. I want to be the ruler. And so this whole idea of, of asking God to shepherd me means that I give up that self-rule. Uh, I am not the captain of my own destiny. Instead, I, I submit myself to the creator as a creature. And, and when we do that, we, we live in a place where we're not living um, in, in what the psalmist calls a, a state of constant want, constantly longing, looking for that next thing to fulfill. And we talked a little bit about that last week. That is, God is leading us to somehow um, finally be satisfied with, with him in a deep and profound way. As St. Augustine put it, God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. The Lord is my shepherd. So these words of the psalm um, touch, touch our deepest selves, and, and not just because of, you know, like, okay, it's really beauty, you know, it's really beautiful, the poetic beauty of it, which it is. Um, and it's not just that, okay, there's emotional lift here. It's, it's much deeper than that. Uh, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, talks about the power captured in the language of the Psalms, and he puts it this way. What makes the language great and provides the emotional lift is chiefly a picture of God and of life. 
we learn from the Psalms how to think and act in reference to God. We drink in God and God's world from them. They provide a vocabulary uh, for living Godward, one inspired by God himself. They show us who God is, and he finishes by saying, and that expands and lifts and directs our hearts and minds. Um, anyone here like to learn how to uh, think and act in reference to God? <laughs> um, to, to, to live Godward? To have your, uh, your mind and heart expanded, lifted, directed? That's, that's why we're studying Psalm 23. And would you do this with me? Last week, we read the psalm together, and I have to apologize. I, I didn't even realize it afterwards. I was reading a different version than you where I told you it was a King James, and I'm sure you were all confused. I wasn't. I was on the right page. You were all wrong. Um, but, uh, no, I apologize for that. So let's do this. Let's read I, from the King James, okay? Each week, we're going to do a different translation. We're going to read from the message maybe next week and a different one. But let's, let's read this together. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. Okay, before I'm just going to read and make sure that we... Okay, ready? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And so when the Lord is my shepherd... I won't live in this constant state of want. But, but further, what, I, what we see in, in verse 2 here is that the shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures and the shepherd leads me beside quiet waters. Green pastures, quiet waters. Now, for the Middle Eastern mind, this green pastures and quiet waters sounds a lot, very interestingly, like Genesis used to, the, the picture that Genesis uses to speak of that um, original habitat for humanity. Remember, there was this lush garden, and in this garden, there were these four rivers flowing out of it. Um, and, and David, this, this former shepherd who's, who's writing Psalm 23, is he's picturing an oasis in the desert, um, a place where the flocks uh, lie down for, for rest, for, for recreation, right? Even, I mean, think about the word recreation, right? Recreation. It's this idea of, of finding this, this place of where we were intended to be, how we were meant to live, what life was intended to look like. Now, anyone notice in this verse that there's this statement that the shepherd makes them lie down? Um, that's kind of strange, isn't it? But this, this carries with it this idea of, of, of being kind of prodded or, or forced to rest. Why is that, I wonder? Well, think about this. Go, go way, way far back in Israel's history to, to a major long-term event 
which um, kind of shaped the, the, the collective conscience of, of this people. Um, Israel lived in slavery in North Africa, Egypt, for, for over 400 years. And think about the life that this, this is. They never had a day off. Um, they were treated really as tools of production to make the pyramids. They were, um, they were doing machines, really little more than that. And they worked seven days a week, uh, all year long, generation after generation, the exact same experience. Now imagine how, how deeply ingrained um, activism, overwork, achieving, doing, would have been just, again, just ingrained to them. And so God delivers them from this bondage of slavery, and as, as a centerpiece of, of his stated and written covenant promise relationship with him, what we call the Ten Commandments, God painted a picture of what life was going to be like if they allowed themselves to be shepherded by this God. Listen to the language here. Exodus 20, this is the first giving of, of how this relationship, the, this covenant or this testament was going to go between God and this people. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Now think about this is totally foreign to them for generations past. This is a totally foreign concept of time, of how to do life, of how to achieve, of how to get forward. But he was teaching them something really important. And notice that this is not a suggestion. Um, God actually forces, and David is, is kind of reinforcing that language. He is making Israel Sabbath in the desert. And, you know, one of the ways that, that he made them Sabbath, um, he would send manna every day when they didn't have food. This, the, this bread would, would be there in the morning on the ground. And, and he, he would not send it on that seventh day, on that Sabbath day, so that they would have to do really double the work on the sixth. It wasn't even an easy thing. It's going to require more work on your part. It's going to require more discipline. It's not going to be easy. And he didn't send it on the Sabbath so that they wouldn't even be tempted to go on with their busy activism, with their work, and forget th this new uh, life rhythm that God was introducing to them. So when God called Israel out of Egypt, he did something in this whole process. He affirmed them that, that, that they were sacred human beings, that they were made in his image, and he was teaching them something really important about what he had in mind for them how they were to live life to the fullest. Listen to God's reasoning why he wanted them to rest on the seventh day. Exodus 20, verse 11, the very next verse, he writes, For in six days Yahweh, God, made the heavens and the earth, he's talking about Genesis 2, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, this is really important. Don't, don't miss this. It's because in, in, in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and the sea and so forth. See, 
when Israel stopped their work, on that one day, they were imitating God. They were a little bit more like he was. God was shaping them. God worked, they worked. God rested, they rested. He was teaching them, you are made of my image. I want you to be like me. And I want to give a little bit of myself to you. So they were learning about their destiny of what it means to be a people of God. It's not mere appeasement. You know, the ancient Near Eastern concept of God is, is appeasing this God, making him happy, doing something that he wants. This God wants something totally different. He wants them to actually reflect them, him, to actually become like him, to be with him, to carry on the same rhythm of life as he. And it was the same really even after they got into Canaan, after they go through this long desert process, they get, they get into the land. Listen to Exodus 23, verse 10 and 11. God says, you shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Now, here's, here's what's going on. When they Sabbath, okay, when they rest, at the heart of this is surrender to God, I would suggest. Um, because, you know, they might say, well, you know, wouldn't it be more productive to work? Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't I achieve more if I just kept going? Um, they were learning something about who, who's really in control in life. Well, this is exactly how Jesus lived his life. Think about this. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul, the apostle, reflecting back on the person of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead coming to live this fully human life, uses this language in Philippians 2, 6. He says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be clutched onto, but he emptied himself. That is, Jesus voluntarily did not access all of his divine attributes. You know, things like, uh, you know, he's all-knowing. Um, he's all-powerful. Uh, he, he, he only did what the Father told him to do. See, this is why we see snapshots of Jesus at times where he has this divine insight into someone's motives, right? He knows what people are thinking. He has this divine access, and then other moments he says, you know, admittedly, I don't even know the day of the second coming of my return. The Son of Man does not know. Only the Father knows. What he's revealing to us is he lived this completely dependent, not self-ruled, completely dependent human life, dependent upon the Father. He relied completely upon the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, whether he was doing carpentry work, whether he was doing ministry work, everything he was doing, all of life was lived completely in dependence upon the Father. And so to be shepherded by God is, is to maneuver all of life, jobs, work, relationship, ministry, I mean, every single thing we're doing, not by my own rule, but with the same reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. 
verse 11, 12. This is, this is the message paraphrase. It's, it's kind of a loose paraphrase, kind of a thought-for-thought thought idea. But, but I love the way he puts this at the end. Eugene Peterson, who did this, he writes, uh, paraphrasing Romans 8, 11, When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? <laughs> I love that. This old do-it-yourself life. See, that's what's characteristic of Genesis 3, of sin, of a life independent of God. The do-it-yourself life is the life that, that started when Adam and Eve overstepped their God-given limitations, God-given boundaries. And this is why Jesus is called the second Adam in the New Testament. It refers to him as the second Adam. It's because he's beginning a new race. And this race of men uh, does not put self at the center. It submits. It lives in this shepherding, sheep relationship that says, God, shepherd me, lead me, and direct me in every single thing that I do. Um, uh, Andrew Del Banco, he's a, he's a professor, um, uh, humanities, I think, at um, uh, Columbia University, wrote a book entitled The Real American Dream. And it's really interesting. He's, he, he's got this section there where he, he talks about three phases that American civilization ha has gone through. And the way that he kind of categorizes them is, is he says, what's, what's the fundamental hope of each generation. Like, like, where do they say that this, this is what really matters, this is where our hope lies, kind of answering the question, who is in charge as well? This is, this is his words here, and I want to write a couple of these up on the board just to kind of see, see this progression. It's interesting. He says, uh, in the first era, this is his language, hope was chiefly expressed through a Christian story that gave meaning to suffering and pleasure alike, and promised deliverance from death. So he says, really, in this first era, um, God, God was the one who was in charge. He was, he sort of, all, all our hope kind of hung on this concept of God and life. And then he says, uh, the second phase, this is how he describes it. The enlightenment removed a personal God and substituted the idea of a deified nation. And, and so in this, as he, he speaks of this, he says, um, you know, the, Adele Banco goes on to say, really, this, this concept held really until about the 1960s. But basically what, what people did in America was they transferred um, kind of the, the, the sacredness of this role of God onto America itself. Um, so that really people began to... Uh, speak of, uh, of America sort of as the redeemer nation. That, that language was actually used. Whose, um, whose system of government, whose, whose way of life was kind of the hope for all the world. Um, and then the third one, he goes on to talk about today, this, this need for transcendence and meaning ha has totally detached itself from, from anything more important than, any guesses? Yeah, the individual 
self. And so, you know, he goes on to say, you know, uh, among the younger generations, they, they look at the kind of older flag-waving people just with, you know, with uh, perplexity. What, what in the world, why would you put hope in that? What, what meaning is there in that? They would look at those who would, who would put hope in God as sort of the centerpiece and say, what are you talking about? Um, now life is, is, is all about creating a self through kind of maximizing my freedom um, from any constraints of community, of, of nation, even of God itself. So I would suggest that ju just as Israel had some really tough barriers, you know, this whole, they're coming out of this Egypt slavery thing, they have all this baggage and background that they're not even aware of. It's like a fish in water. They don't even know they're wet. They're not even aware of these filters that they have. I would suggest that we have our own cultural challenges to this concept of, of rest, which is required to be shaped and formed into the image of Christ. This is sort of a barrier to a life surrendered to God for us. But the cool part is God gives both Israel and us, here in verse 2, um, the answer, the key, the clue. When he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside the quiet waters. See, when I rest, when I Sabbath, um, it, it breaks the power of self-rule. Because one of the biggest things that I want to be in charge of is me, right, self. And that means my time, what I do. So to stop that, to say, hold on, I'm not going to do what I want for this moment, to remind myself who's really in control and to kind of reorient myself. Because it's in this biblical concept of Sabbath that God is forming us. And this is a radical picture. And I would suggest that many of us in the modern day church have lost the importance. I know I have lost the importance of Sabbath or Sabbaths, Sabbath moments in my day, in my week, even in my year. Because see, when I Sabbath, Sabbath reminds me to, um, as Psalm 46 says, be still and know that he is God. There is a knowledge that comes to me in my heart and mind that happens, that won't happen any other time. It allows me to, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 25, to stop worrying about tomorrow. Uh, do you remember the, the series we did? We talked about emotionally healthy spirituality, right? That, that kind of big, long mouthful of a title. <laughs> I think we've kind of gotten it down. Emotionally healthy spirituality. We spent a number of weeks walking through uh, this, this, this practice of saying we want to live this full-orbed concept as a disciple of Christ. And so it's not just my spiritual life. It's, it's also uh, being an emotionally stable person because my spirituality has this filter of who I, of how healthy I am emotionally. And uh, Pete Scazzaro, in, in that book, Emotionally Healthy Church, he makes this statement. He says, the core spiritual issue in stopping, he's talking about that rest place, the core spiritual issue in stopping revolves around trust. That's interesting. He goes on to say, um, th think about just some of the things that, that when we stop, when we rest, we do the Sabbath or these smaller Sabbaths, that even momentarily, we kind of let go and we say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be clutching onto that um, work, physical exhaustion, hurriedness, 
multitasking, competitiveness, worry, decision-making, catching up on errands, talking, technology, machines. What would it be like if we said, you know, just, just some of those things I'm going to pause from. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice this whole thing of, of just pausing from that. Um, Schizero in that book, I, in, this, in this chapter 8 where he kind of talks about what does this mean to live this life of, of Sabbath rest, not just this one day a week thing, but just this, this life of it. He tells the story of how farmers in the Midwest used to prepare themselves for, for blizzards by, by, by tying a rope from, from their back door to their barn because they would have to go back and forth even in the midst of these horrifying blizzards. And these blizzards, he said, you know, would come quickly and fiercely and were extremely dangerous. And when they were blowing in full force, he said the farmer couldn't even see his or her hand right in front of their face. It, it was that much of a whiteout. And um, he said that many of them froze to death in those blizzards being totally disoriented by their inability to see. And, and they would just like wander in circles, many of them in their own backyards. And if, if they lost grip of this rope, it would become absolutely impossible for them to get back to their house. And reported that some, some froze within feet of their back porch, so close to safety. Um, does your life ever feel just kind of disorienting? like? You've just said yes to too many things. Um, you know, you're, you're overscheduled. Um, you're tense. You're addicted to hurry. You know, you just, you just like kind of feel frantic almost all throughout your day. You're preoccupied with kind of the next thing or, or things you've, is there anything I've even forgotten? Um, you're just kind of fatigued. You know, you're like starved for time. There's always that thought in your mind like, man, if I could just get a couple more hours in my day. And, and we kind of battle life just to make the most of every minute. And, and then add to that storm, say a totally unexpected storm, a trial, a sickness, a job, financial challenge, something totally unexpected, something you're not even thinking about. And then we wonder why we feel so disoriented, so confused. Psalm 23 tells us that the, this rhythm of being forced to lie down in the pasture of, of being still, of, of scheduling, resting, Sabbathing. This is the rope by which we hold on to God. And this, it's really interesting. We're told in the gospel, I was just thinking about that uh, this last week, and I just, I was reading this verse in, in uh, Luke 4 that, that speaks of Jesus. This is when he went into his hometown and he went into the synagogue and, and, uh, and he read this passage, and, and it's sort of the start of, in many ways of his public ministry, but there's this interesting statement. It just, it just kind of hit me different than it, than it has before. Um, it says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up on the Sabbath day, and it says he went into the synagogue as was his custom. This tells me that Jesus had customs. I just, I just hadn't thought about it like that before. He had rhythms. He, he had discipline. He had structure built into his life. Um, do you remember what Jesus said when, when, when he was tempted by Satan uh, in the desert? Remember what his response always was? What did he say? He'd say, what? Well, it, it, it is written, right? How, how did he know what was written in Scripture? You ever thought about that? I would suggest the same way that, that we do. 
how do we know what Scripture says? Um, because just like Jesus, only if we slowly, consistently immerse ourselves in these words that they just kind of become second nature. They just kind of flow out of us. The Bible tells us that, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He, just like us. That's how he learned. He built in these rhythms, these rests. The Bible tells us uh, David practiced set times of prayer uh, seven, seven times a day, Psalm 119. Uh, Daniel prayed three times a day, Daniel 6. Devout Jews during Jesus' time would have prayed two to three different times. These are these sort of rhythms, these customs of life, and it's very probable that Jesus would have followed that two to three times a day kind of concept. And see, here's my challenge. Lots of times, I, I can approach uh, rest, you know, thinking like, my, you know, like I'll have a devotion, okay? At the beginning of the day, you know, I get up, I try to build that into my life, and, and so I have maybe, maybe 10 minutes, maybe it's 15, maybe it's 20, maybe I read scripture, a devotional, listen to a song, whatever it might be, and, and kind of approach it like this will fill me up for the day, right? And then, and then you know, I get to, I get to lunchtime, and, and it's, it's a little emptier, and, and maybe I'm just I'm a little agitated by something, and, the, and then I get to later afternoon, and I'm, and I'm a little emptier, and so, you know, it's easier for me to get frustrated. You know, by evening I get home, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty empty, and I have zero patience, and, and oftentimes I think, what, what happened? Like, I thought, I thought that kind of would work if I just had this kind of fill up. It carries me through the day, and see, here, here's what I'm really committing myself to, because I'm realizing that model doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work for me. And so in this new year, one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I don't usually do the whole, you know, make a whole lot of New Year's resolutions, but, but one of the things that I'm just trying to commit myself to is, is to do something that, that we talked about in this Emotionally Healthy series that, that relates to this, that Psalm uh, ver, uh, 23, verse 2 talks about, is, is taking what um, in that book talks about as Sabbath, that's the weekly thing, and then daily office. And daily office is just kind of like, uh, moments, like scheduling, it's, maybe it's seven times a day, maybe it's four, maybe it's three, it's probably different for all of us. It's just a moment. Maybe I've got 30 seconds, maybe I've got three minutes to just stop and to just be, be real, real quiet and to reorient myself. Maybe it's just to, maybe it's to read a psalm, maybe it's just one verse, you know, the verse from Psalm, God, you hem me in behind and in front. Your hand is on me. Maybe it's just that. And I just stop. And I just think. And I reflect. It's stopping to put my hand back on the rope in that blizzard of life. Not, not even to get anything from God necessarily. It's just to be with him. It's just to be in his presence of the shepherd. And so I'm going back through this. And I would encourage you, if, if you've already, you know, I know a lot of you guys have already read that. Go back. Make, make that idea of lying down in the pasture, make that a discipline, a rhythm in your life. And it, can, it looks totally different for each one of us because we're made differently. So this year, I want to learn how to, how to have like solitude, how to have um, silence. Um, as you know, that studies say that the average group can only bear about 15 seconds of silence.
many of you are uncomfortable with that? <laughs> Finally, me too. I'm uncomfortable with it. That's 15 seconds, right? We bear that out. That's absolutely true. We're uncomfortable with silence. But we are commanded to schedule our lives around regular experience of lying down in that green pasture by the still waters to, to, to recalibrate the mind, emotions, will, the soul. It's really interesting. You know, throughout the Bible, every time God commanded his people to, to Sabbath, um, the emphasis changed on, on why he wanted them to do it. And so they, they kind of grow to understand the, the purpose more fully. For instance, Exodus 20. This is the very first time that the Ten Commandments are given. Exodus 20. Um, for six days, I'm sorry, for in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth. He's talking about what? Heaven, making the heavens. He's talking about creation, right? Um, so creation resting from work. That's, that's what informed why they did it. Okay? You go a couple generations later, uh, Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments are given again. They're twice in Scripture. The reason why is because it's like the next generation. It's the ones who kind of hadn't heard it and didn't remember it too well. And so he's giving it to them. This is post-Egypt. And listen to why he says it. Fourth commandment, all the other commandments are exactly the same. All ten of them. The fourth one gets tweaked. It's a little different the second time he gives it. Deuteronomy 5.12, he says, Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But here's the why. It has nothing to do with creation. Now listen to it. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So it's not creation. Now it's exodus, right? And it's not work. It's slavery. Here's the point. Israel always understood Sabbath, this kind of central command, based on what was the most significant event that God had done. Um, any idea the day of the week that the Sabbath always has been in the Jewish mind? Yeah, seventh day of the week, the last day, it's Saturday. Um, any, any idea what day of the week followers of Jesus began to practice Sabbath rest? The first day of the week. Well, what, what possibly, what event could possibly be more dramatic, significant than creation itself or release from slavery? Exodus. You know what happened on the first day of the week? A tomb was empty, a stone was rolled away, and the resurrection of the divine Son of God occurred. See, that's recreation. And because of that, a new Exodus from an old spiritual slavery happened in a fuller way than it's ever happened in the world. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. We're going to celebrate communion as we do every week. And what I want us to realize is that this is the most significant event. It passes creation itself. It passes the, the exodus of, of, of thousands of slaves. It passes anything else. It is the most dramatic event in all of history. Because as we sang at the beginning, it's because he lives that I can face the storms, that I can face tomorrow, that I can do life, 
that I can do anything. It's all because of the resurrection of the Son of God. Because new creation started. The second Adam came, and he destroyed the curse, which kept us in a deeper slavery than we've ever been in. 